the next thing I know, it's uh, 11.30 at night, and he's floating along beside us with a rod that's broken into four pieces. And, uh, and then the next thing I know about that, we're phoning our wives from the top of a mountain pass here in, in the interior of BC because the uh, northern lights were making an appearance that they don't normally do. And uh, we were kind of discounting the fact that it was at that time 2.30 in the morning and uh, thought our wives would like to know that we were seeing the Northern Lights when in fact, they probably were not very happy that we weren't home yet. Welcome to the Fly Fishing 97 podcast, a look behind the scenes of the fly fishing world, featuring insight from guides and gear reps, conversation with resort managers, thoughts on entomology, discussions on fly patterns and destinations, and plenty of fish stories. Most importantly, it's an exploration of this lifelong journey we call fly fishing. Here is your host, Mark Hopley, with this episode of Fly Fishing 97. <laughs> Welcome to this edition of Fly Fishing 97 podcast. I'm your host, Mark Hopley, and today I am pleased to welcome, uh, I call him a good friend, but he's more of an acquaintance and, well, a fishing buddy, Steve Hogg of the program. Steve, thanks for coming on today. Good to see you, Mark. This is the first uh, interview that we've done not via the phone, so we've got to look at each other's mugs, so... Bear with us. Um, Steve, we spent a lot of time on the water together, and I just want i want to know your thoughts on fly fishing and kind of how you started in fishing, because I know you got a huge passion for it. We shared a lot of time on the water, and uh, maybe tell tell our listeners kind of how, how fishing started for you. Well, like anybody, I think I uh, started fishing when I was a young kid, probably uh, four or five years old. Uh, oddly enough, it wasn't my parents who... Uh, who I learned to fish from. It was from one of my uncles who used to take me out pike fishing back in southern Alberta. And when I was about eight or nine years old, I guess, I uh, was the first time I'd ever seen anybody using a, uh, a fly uh, on the end of a casting bubble as opposed to on a fly rod. But they were certainly out fishing the, uh, the bobber and worm fishermen that, uh, that I was a, cro- a part of the crowd with. So it, it intrigued me pretty early. Do you still use casting bubble? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, stop. You still use a casting bubble? <laughs> Edit. Occasionally, when I need a little extra distance, uh, you know, when I'm trying to outcast you. That's your, but, uh, that's your weight forward. That's Yeah, it's your weight forward on the end of your floating line there, yeah. But in all seriousness, tell me, so you, you got into fly fishing... You sound like you think that I'm joking, but actually that wasn't even an adjustable. You had to tie a line, you had to tie your main line to the top of the bobber and you had to tie your tippet to the bottom end of the bobber and cast it out. I first, I first fly fished properly with a fly rod. I was introduced to it by a friend of mine when I was about 14 years old. It was an old eight foot fiberglass, uh, rod with uh with a floating line and a royal coachman and uh that's what we used to go fly fishing with was that a ted peck no no i did have a ted peck spinning rod but i I did not have a ted peck fly rod word words no mine was mine was fenwick man it was high end so tell me a little bit now so so now we've been fishing together for how many years more than i care to remember mark probably uh we're coming up probably in 25 years all right tell me what appeals to you so much about fly fishing today? Well, for me, being just being out in the water is a happy place for me. So I, everything sort of uh, 
everything else sort of goes away you know if you're having problems with anything else or if you need to think about something it's a great place to do that but most times it just uh, everything else disappears when you're out on the water and when you're fly fishing of course it's all about um, observation and, and trying to figure out what's going on in a particular lake at a particular time and you know like most guys you know first thing you do when you pull up to the lake before you even take the boats or the gear out of the truck is you know you go wander down to the water and have a look at the shoreline maybe roll over a couple of rocks see what's see what's scurrying around see what the lake looks like if it's an old friend you know if it's a lake that's an old friend you haven't been at for a couple of years maybe you sit there for a minute or two and just look across the water yeah no i hear you and that's something that we don't talk about a lot but for me time on the water is it's about the space and and like you say time time to kind of get away from the everyday right sure i mean we you know we have our days where we're you know we're joking and laughing you know yucking it up if if we're you know parked close to each other while we're uh chronomid fishing or whatever but uh, there's other days where you know lots of times we go to the opposite end of the lake from each other and just kind of touch base every two three hours and see who's doing what where and those are my favorite days when you're at the other end of the lake of all your fly fishing if you go anywhere at the lakes rivers whatnot we fish bass trout you name it what's your favorite place you, well still waters as opposed to uh to running water i know running water is a personal favorite of yours and i, I do like running water but for me um you know i'm still a guy who doesn't mind uh throwing a dragonfly nymph or a or a leech on a lake and just going for a kick around the lake and looking at the scenery and and uh seeing you know if you know you run into a moose or something along the shoreline it's always kind of cool or you know my uh, propensity for having wildlife comes uh coming around me while i'm fishing is well known with all you guys that i fish with so there's no doubt beavers and ospreys flock to your boat <laughs> if you're out in the lake today what do you what are you putting on your rod like what are you tying on what's your favorite fly what's your go-to pattern well I, you know coronamid fishing is is where we i think are at right now as far as what we like to go and do and and you know for me coronamid fishing is just a you know your basic black red rib white head under the indicator mm-hmm. um you know I'm, I'm new to that part of things and you know for me that's only a four or five years of uh doing that where a lot of guys have been doing that type of stuff for 20 years you know i remember the first time i ever heard about chronomid fishing was somebody i think it was at ben shona rods up in Kelowna, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. uh <laughs> that's probably 30 years ago and being absolutely uh uh flabbergasted to hear them showing me a, the, a chronomid of a fly that a, you know was so much smaller than anything i'd ever seen before and having a hard time believing that they were fishing that in 20 or 30 feet of water they used to fish them on uh on you know lead core lines or high d lines and mm-hmm. and do the hand twist retrieve up from there and you know probably probably they were well ahead of their time no. in terms of uh you know we're a lot of guys are just starting to learn to do that right now those guys were doing it 30 years ago they were kind of on cutting edge yeah no you're right for a guy that's colorblind you pick the right fly a lot <laughs> i'm just curious <laughs> what your method is for that because honest and, and i'm not trying to be funny here but it'll be like Look at this green fly I'm using. Steve, that's not green. That's red. So, well, we just had that conversation last night when I showed you that fly, didn't we? That I told you was black, and you said that's green. Uh, most of the time, I can differentiate. I can differentiate between blacks and grays, and but little subtle colors and color changes. Like I have a hard time picking up a red rib on a uh, on a black chronomid. I don't see that very well, and. Uh, mm-hmm. So when I do go uh, 
to get flies, you know, whether I'm buying them or whether I'm getting some from you, I, uh, I, when I'm putting them in my box, I sort them all according to the color that they are by using a pair of glasses and a magnifying glass so I can see everything better and sort of memorize where in the box I put the black with red or where I put the black with silver or where I put yeah. the, the blacks and grays. And, you know, chromies are an easy one for me to differentiate. So that's, so that's a go-to. Uh, but if you try, ask me to try and find the chromie that's got a red hot spot behind the head, I, uh, I probably won't be able to pick that one out. You do outfish me <laughs> nine times out of 10. So I'm curious <laughs> your, your methods. Well, there, like I said, there, I don't know about the outfishing part, but, uh, I'm not at the stage where I uh, have to have my clothes numbered to tell me which uh, which colors go with which because I have a couple of friends that are that bad. But uh, I uh, I do have to put a little bit of work into my fly box at home with a set of glasses on and a magnifying glass and sort things out so that and then memorize where I've put stuff. You know what's funny when when I started doing this podcast, I imagined it as you and I doing a conversation, but you got really busy, and I thought, you know what, I'm just going to do this on my own, and and uh, we'll have you on at some point in the future. And that, that that point is now, and I'm I'm glad you're taking the time. I appreciate it. But um, if you could change one thing in our sport, what what would you change? I I I'm really not a fan of the. You heard it before, the elitism, and I think the elitism is kind of going out of things, but. Like honestly, you know, I uh, I'll share I'll share information with anybody that asks me. If somebody's coming by and I'm catching fish, and they're not, um, you know, they don't have to ask me what's working. I'll usually tell them what I'm catching fish on, and I just think that sharing of information is is still not as commonplace as as it could or should be between a lot of guys who are all interested in the same sport. I mean, it's a little different if. You know, if you've got somebody coming up to you that's got a chain hanging off the side of their boat with a couple of fish attached to it, and you're in a lake where you really would rather not see a bunch of fish get bonked, uh, especially if they're of any size. But uh, you know, I, we're all we're all in it together here, and uh, you know, hey, nobody gets out of life alive, so let's just uh, let's just help each other out here and have some fun. I mean, you guys always give me the gears for you know handing over uh, fly patterns to guys when when I'll, I'll clip them off my line and hand them to people and I, don't I, give <laughs> I remember a lake close by here that that uh i handed him you know a half a dozen dragonfly nymphs because he'd never heard of them before and he and his wife were camping at the lake for the next six days and weren't going to be coming to town and the guy was desperate to get his wife into a couple of fish and that lake was notorious dragonfly lake and he just didn't have them and had never heard of them and i don't think ever uh ever forgot that and he still he still gives me the gears about it there's not for me there's nothing better than sharing information out there and i know i fish with guys that are pretty competitive and i can see if you're in the world fly fishing championships or something crazy like that but when it comes down to -to day-to-day fishing and just trying to figure out what the insects are doing and figuring out uh, how to have basically a fun time on the water that's one thing i agree with you i've never understood that and uh i think i think that's one thing i love about fishing with you is we're sharing information so it's like having two rods on the water when you have uh, a buddy or uh, somebody you trust that can give you the good from all the time that you spent on the water and I have a funny feeling I probably know the answer to this but I'm going to ask it anyway have you got any crazy fishing stories you want to share <laughs> uh well uh, as as I alluded to earlier it seems like I get more than my fair share of animal attention when we're out fishing I've, I've you know shown you 
I've had uh, I've had a family of beavers that followed me around one of the lakes here that uh, started off with the I'm assuming the male beaver out of the bunch, uh, who then brought his his uh, partner and their kits. And at one point, I had five beaver heads floating around the back of the pontoon or the uh, float tube at the time. Um, I remember a day on a lake when uh, you and I were out. And uh, all of a sudden, I had a snake climb up onto the front of the uh, uh, float tube to uh, dry off a little bit. And you were a little disconcerted about the fact that I wasn't too worried about him being there and let him hang out for a while. I don't have a problem with snakes. I just don't like it when you throw them at me. Uh, come on, Seriously. I sent that one down the river to you that time. He, he just swam down to your rock and climbed up on the rock with you. It's not my fault. I didn't know you had that kind of a problem. I don't have a problem with snakes. I just don't like them on my boat. Uh, because I do get to spend a fair bit of time on the water, you know, I mean, I had a had something goofy happen two days ago. I was out on a lake, and, and uh, while I was uh, fishing, uh, the welds on my, uh, pontoon boat on one side broke and the whole pontoon boat folded up on me while I was in the middle of the lake with two rods in my hand. And, uh, and yeah, then, you know, I ended up having to semi, semi swim, semi paddle back to the truck. Was that a folding boat? One of those folding boats? Uh, no, no, oh. but I turned my fully welded steel framed pontoon boat into a folding boat. Like an accordion. Something like that. Mm. How'd you get off the lake? <laughs> Really? How? Mm-hmm. I had to swim with one arm and kick one leg because the pontoon boat was folded in on top of me, and I couldn't, uh, I couldn't kick with both uh, legs with fins. That's so I was only, uh, I was only fortunate that the pontoons uh, did not puncture, and they just both held air. So once I determined I wasn't going to drown, it was okay. I got another question for you. If you were on the still water, one of your favorite waters, and you're limited to one or two patterns, uh, what would you be fishing in uh, the interior of uh, British Columbia? Well, I mean, it, you know, in my heart, I'd, I'd love it to be the middle of June, and I'd love it to be caddis season, so I could just tell you an elk hair caddis. I'd be putting that on. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, you know, that's a pretty small window of opportunity that we get to fish that way. Uh so probably for me it would be a uh, a vampire leech on a uh, on an intermediate line as a searching pattern and uh, and probably um, a dragonfly nymph for the same reason. You like the rod getting ripped right out of your hands? No, absolutely. Of, yeah. Who doesn't like that? Yeah. I think it's funny because I'll tell you that you outfished me with that leech pattern a lot of times, and especially in low light conditions. Well, the nice part about that vampire leech, I think, when it gets to be early in the morning or, or later at night when you're starting to think that you got about a half an hour of light left is that, uh, you know, it just glows, it just glows UV light. And, and uh, you know, I think that the leech itself just looks like something interesting to start with. And then you add that little glowing lighted, almost like a lighted ball at the head of it when it's low light conditions. I think it's, uh, I think it's a bit of a game changer. We've had a lot of success early in the season with chronomids, but I notice you always seem to do really well pre-chronomid season with the, the micro leeches on the on indicators. Well, you know, when the water's cold and the and the chronomids are not really going yet, you know, when you're still at forty eight or fifty degrees and the fish are a little lethargic, you know, either a either a micro leech up in the shallows or a shrimp up in, pattern up in the shallows, you know, under an indicator. I mean. I think my best early season fish this year, you know, came with a with a shrimp three feet under an indicator, mm-hmm. and uh, just fished along the front of a reed bed and and uh, you know bobber down. 
You're, you're echoing what uh, I believe it was Jordan Ulrich that had said the same thing. Um, shrimp patterns early, early on, before those crannies really get hatching. I mean, you and I were on a lake the other day at high elevation, and we're talking, what are we now, into June, and the water temperature was 51? Yeah, yeah. So, Spring-fed lake, so it was a little bit colder than than normally a lake at that elevation probably would have been and we've got a little bit of a cold snap going on here right now but you know before we went on that lake uh, I was at a different lake two days before I was out with you the lake that I was at that day was a thousand feet higher and uh, the water temperature was only 55 or 56 degrees but when I was talking to the guys that had been there for a week uh, at the beginning of the week before that it was all the way up at 61 and was on the drop was it 56 and I talked to somebody yesterday so this is a week later I talked to somebody yesterday who was on the lake and the lake the water temperature is all the way down to 51 already so um you know it's just a matter of timing and the guys that were on that water when it was 58 degrees were were lighting up the chronomans like crazy and now it's a week later the water's 51 degrees and you got to scratch you know all day just to get a bite it's funny how sometimes you really got to work for it think back like a month and a half ago into may and we were sitting in a high pressure system for maybe two weeks it was 30 uh, celsius which is uh, one fahrenheit pretty yeah. warm um and we had all kinds of hatches going on it seems like we've gone backwards this year not forward well that well like i said the the, the high pressure system left the high temperatures left the water still getting down you know the the nighttime temperatures are still getting down to you know five five degrees celsius or less and uh you know the daytime temperatures on that lake i was talking about were only 10 degrees celsius and you know that that water's just not it's not heated up yet if you were to think about your time back in the prairies and back when you kind of first started fishing into now who would be the most influential person uh, or persons in in your fly fishing Fishing in general, it would be my uncle Rick who kind of fed the uh, the passion that I I used to get really quite fired up. And like I said, nobody in my family really fished, so Uncle Rick used to take me out for for pike, and uh, you know he called them slew sharks at the time. And uh, we used to go and throw uh, spoons for those. And uh, there was a couple of small trout lakes in southern Alberta where I grew up, but nothing major. So we used to spend, you know, we used to spend our weekends. Uh, on the dirt bikes going through coolies looking for water and almost all the water had pike in it and then uh, when we moved out here to BC when I was 11 years old I uh, had a best friend who uh, who had a spare fly rod and had been fly fishing for two or three years and he uh, he kind of took me out a few times and I, I really started liking it a lot better than trolling around the lake with a gang troll or anything like that and so I ended up buying that uh, I bought that Fenwick uh red Fenwick fiberglass fly rod off him for uh for thirty dollars if I remember correctly and uh and that was the start of uh fly fishing. What do you what do you like to fish with now? What's your what, what's your setup? I, yeah, I think you got like a hundred and five rods. <laughs> I just want to make sure that I'm, I'm kinda of dialed into what you're using. Uh, hi, I'm Steve and I have a problem with buying rods. <laughs> <laughs> I uh right now I you know I'm liking a ten foot five weight for, for throwing chronomids and I actually have a nine and a half foot six weight that uh, is really a nice line to throw a like an intermediate or a or a, a high D line on uh, both of those are temple fork rods and uh, mm. I, I quite like those good value 
uh, well, that's that's the thing, right? I, I'm one of those guys that don't like to spend a lot of money. I like to I like to spend my money wisely, I guess, and feel like I'm getting value for it, but also not being overly concerned about something uh, if it gets you know shut in a in a pickup truck tailgate or a door or if it falls off the uh the roof of the truck because you've got it sitting up there while you're getting ready and you know no idea what you're talking about yeah well you'll you'll come to realize that's why you have 105 rods (laughs) i mean let's face it it's it's great to have these rods that that uh you know they all i mean they all pretty much these days have lifetime warranties now but honestly i can probably count on one hand uh, how many rods I've broken in the last uh, in the last thirty years, and uh, none of them involved a fish. Yeah, well, I, I, I mean, I think I spent fifteen hundred dollars on a fly rod recently, and I love it. But my question is: is where's the value? So is it is it three hundred bucks? Is it two hundred bucks? I mean, I know to everyone it's a different. Ending. Sure, the value the value is wherever you believe that it is. You know, if you if I you know there's guys out there that won't give up their fifteen hundred dollar rods for anything. And, um, you know, I, I, that's totally, that's, that's up to each individual, individual person's preference, right? You realize I have three or four lifetime warranty rods in this closet collecting dust that are broken that I think I've had for probably 10 years. You know that I know you have those. Yeah. And you also know that I've, you know, offered several times for you to just hand me the rods and I'll send them in. What do you need? 120? What are you going to do with it? You just don't know. Maybe I'll read. Maybe <laughs> you got enough fly rods. Maybe you'll get them back for Christmas one year. I've told you, I'm a, I'm a gear. I'm a rod guy. I, you know, a I got a problem. Guy. When are you going to start time flies? <laughs> yeah, this is the question that comes up all the time, uh, especially from you and Glenn. I can't afford to keep you in flies. Oh, you well, that's more? because you won't let me buy your equipment for you anymore. No, so free. price yeah. is right. <laughs> but seriously, when are you going to start time flies? It's going to have to happen here soon. And, uh, you know, I know we've messed around on the vice a couple of times there with, with a couple of chronomids. And, and I certainly need to learn to tie some chronomids and some uh, some woolly buggers uh, or leeches. Winter. We keep saying that. And then I keep, you know, just get on things it. keep happening. It's a game changer. <laughs> of course, you won't know what color they are, so I might have an advantage. See, I might just have an entire wall of black and white colored stuff hanging up in front of me, and you know, because that's the only two colors I can see properly. Let's talk bucket list. <laughs> bucket list. Let's talk bucket list. Sure. So if you could fish anywhere in the known world, where would that be? Probably Florida for tarpon. That would be a real. Uh, that would be a riot. They don't take prawnies. No, and the indicators are huge that you have to use for those <laughs> for those tarpon. I'm, I'm told, but uh, well, about? you know what? We've had this conversation before, and uh, I am not the guy who thinks that uh, standing in a in a 30 mile an hour wind and trying to cast straight into it is uh, is a really high on my list. Especially not for the money that costs to get there. But that's the that's the cheap Scotsman in me coming out. Right. Yeah, so, um, you know, Argentina obviously is is a mecca, and so is uh, so is Russia. Um, Where are we going next year on our trip? <laughs> last year, so last year we well this year we ended up spending what um, four or five five days on uh, where the heck were we at Roche? Roche, thank you. In, in outside the Kamloops area, John Kent really put us on to some nice fish, and I think that 
You know what? We timed that so right. It, it rarely ever happens. Usually we get a low-pressure system roll in and it rains. I mean, having 15 days off a year, you got to take advantage of it. And we seem to always miss it, but this year we, we nailed it. Yeah, Pro, that's probably the first time, though, when you think about it, that's probably the first time of absolutely nailing weather pattern in at least the last five or six years. Mm-hmm. You know, we've been to a few... To a few uh, pretty cool places that uh, that the water that the that the weather sort of interfered with what could have been a a good time. Yeah, I think uh, you know if you look at where you were ten years ago, and and it's certainly easier, and I can certainly see the logic and and wish I had have learned earlier um, of having a a daily journal or a, or a fishing journal that uh, at the end of the day you wrote down your observations. I'm not talking about taking copious notes while you're on the lake, but even if you take 10 minutes at the end of the day and write down, you know, what happened that day and what they were on and what the weather conditions were and that, I think, uh, I think that accumulated knowledge, if you think you're always going to just remember it, so why bother writing it down? You know, probably, probably forgotten so many important things now and guys that have been in the sport for, you know, 30 years longer than, than we have certainly got, you know, more and more and more knowledge than we have. What stopped you from becoming a guide? I didn't. I was already in the tourism industry and uh, hospitality, and I really was scared that turning something I loved doing into a job might lessen how much I loved that thing. And I, I, I kind of protect that that fishing um, bug uh, pretty religiously. Uh, you know, here's it's a funny story. When my first son was born I, uh, I can remember for the first three or four years after he was born I had a standing date with my wife on uh, you know the first week or so of January to take her out to dinner with the sole purpose of negotiating how many nights a week that year I was going to be allowed to fish <laughs> and uh, and I can always remember starting at seven nights a week and uh wheedling wheedling it down well i was pretty fortunate and that uh you know my wife was the forgiving type and uh would still allow me at that time in the middle of a bass obsession to go uh four or five nights a week even with a new uh a new baby at home so what's the thing used to drive me nuts i used to work at a a fishing um hunting fishing shop and uh, Steve would come in and basically be like, what are you doing after work? I'm like, well, let's see, I'm working eight, nine hours, and it's going to be dark in a few. Well, let's go. We can go in the... (laughs) (laughs) You always seem to have time to go, and I think, uh, Betsy, if you're listening, thank you. Um, you, You've been pretty fortunate in that regard. Oh, absolutely. And, uh, you know, I've certainly uh, taken advantage of that, uh, of her good nature in regards to that, and and I've put myself into some situations where, you know, I shouldn't be doing that kind of stuff. Uh, you know, there's been several nights I remember I remember one night uh, with you and another uh, friend of ours where we, we literally kidnapped him. We didn't, his wife thought he was going to be home for dinner and we forced him to uh, call her and tell her that he wasn't coming home. Mm-hmm. And uh, the next thing I know, it's... Uh, 11:30 at night and he's floating along beside us with a rod that's broken into four pieces and uh and then the next thing i know about that we're phoning our wives from the top of a mountain pass here in in the interior of bc because the uh northern lights were making an appearance that they don't normally do and uh, we were kind of discounting the fact that it was at that time 2:30 in the morning 
and uh, thought our wives would like to know that we were seeing the Northern Lights when, in fact, they probably were not very happy that we weren't home yet at two thirty in the morning. I'll never forget that night. It was it was a perfect <laughs> night as far as we. Had, I think we had three lakes in a period of uh, probably twenty hours. We had an amazing caddis hatch. We had a twelve hundred dollar rod break into four pieces. We saw the Northern Lights. It was the, it was the trifecta. <laughs> Well, that was the trip where we wouldn't take no for an answer. If I remember correctly, we came across a bridge that had been washed out. That's and we right. Decided we were going across anyway, and uh, when Stubborn. we when we tried to come back, discovered that we couldn't go up the bank anymore. That uh, that we had come down, and uh, then we had to find our way out before the days of GPS and before the days of uh, yeah. phone navigation or or anything like that. So um, you know that was a that was a pretty solid night. I seem to recall having a few laughs about that over the years. It's amazing how you look back at all the fishing trips you've done in your life. And if you know what, you don't remember them all, but you remember certain experiences. And for me, that's that's kind of what matters. Yeah. Well, it's uh, it's certainly you know the company that you keep and the uh, and the the you know the people that you choose to spend time with certainly help make the experience better. And if you're the kind of guy that uh, that can go fishing on his own and be just as happy you know, as the kind of guy that needs to go with other people then you know there's there's nothing wrong with that and and certainly i can spend um as much time on the water by myself as i can when somebody else is around you know you always have laughs with your buddies and and you know you're you're uh pulling each other's chains a little bit sometimes and we can get at it a lot uh, a lot worse than a lot of guys uh can that's for sure i want to know why it is that you always catch the bigger fish when you're on your own uh, well, that's just that's just the way that it is. You know, there's a reason there's no pictures. I need proof. <laughs> pictures, or it didn't happen, baby. Let's let's get into what should we get into? How about river fishing? Tell me some of your favorite um, river stories. Like, have you? Uh, I know you've got a few. Well, uh, where you know where we are here in the Okanagan Valley, there's not a lot of moving water, and uh, given that we mostly do our fishing on day trips. Um, we're sort of limited that way in the sense of not being able to make multi-day floats or anything like that. But um, yeah, you know what? We've got a we've got a nice little wild river close by here, and and we can make those uh, those. Uh, well, what was that last drift we did there, Mark? I think it was 20, 22, 26k. Yeah. Yeah. So 26 kilometers. You know, a couple of trucks, one at the top, one at the bottom. You know, three or four guys. Uh, you know, that's a that's a 10 hour day with with times to stop in some of the pools that you want to fish in and and that and you know a couple of times you get up there. You know, we've had we've had 100 fish days each um, on dry flies. I, I just love when you get away from the road and you just it's just you in the river and you're just drifting and like for me, I, I don't even. I don't necessarily need a fly rod in my hand. It makes it a heck of a lot better. Sure. But it doesn't get any better than that. Well, it's not about the fishing at that stage. It's just about the entire sensory experience, right? You're looking at the water, the sound of the water. You're, uh, you know, you're having to pay attention, obviously, when you're in pontoon boats on a river. You can't just float, you know, <laughs> at whatever direction you want. And, uh, you know, you got to keep an eye. And the fishing is secondary, for sure, to the float because even... Even that river that we fish on is not uh, is not an easy. Well, it's an easy float, but it, even in easy floats, there's parts where there's, you well, where I you seem, can have some trouble. So. I seem to remember you falling out of your boat in a couple of white water uh, I, in a couple of I think what, the Hell's Kitchen. I think falling out of the boat was the wrong uh, word. I think what the, what happened there is was propelled out of the boat. 
Uh, when the when the pontoon uh, took a dip into the rocks, and I went straight out the front of the pontoon and into the into the river. I was actually worried about you there. I was trying <laughs> to get back upstream, and you absorbed a couple of rocks. Yep, I did. Boulders. I did. Yeah, no, a couple a couple of hard ones in the knees. Thankfully, I had my uh, had my life jacket on, and and looking back on it, I can certainly see where um, you know when you're in the river, I probably now would would think about having or make sure that I had a, you know a helmet on. I think you should always have a helmet on. That goes without saying. <laughs> I need a helmet on in most that, things that, that I do. That stretch of river, though, in my mind, that's a portage from now on in. I will not float <laughs> that. You cannot talk me into it. I will walk around it uh, or I will not do it. I'm certainly glad to be able to do my public service portion of my uh, trip so that you are now safe from that uh, from the dangers of that particular. I'm thinking about bringing a safety aspect into the podcast. <laughs> I guess Ricky I, Bobby. One thing that I do find a little <laughs> frustrating is your Talladega Nights references on the water. <laughs> I'm going to come at you like a spider monkey, old man. Yeah, well. <laughs> if you're not first, you're last, baby. If you're fishing <laughs> on your favorite river, which I think I know what it is, what, what would you be, what are you doing? You're fishing caddis, you're fishing dry, you're fishing wet? Yeah, no, I think, uh, you know, everybody's everybody's favorite is the visual, right? So you want you want the dry fly and watching it get... Uh, watching it get absorbed and and the rivers here of course don't have the the size of trout or char that that some of the ones where people are listening from will have you know so we're not fishing streamers for bull trout or or uh, big rainbows here so you know for me just a, a nice little deer hair uh, sedge uh, floating high in the in the riffles and, and into the pools and watching that get uh, pulled under uh, you know nothing better right it's and, all about placement too right sure Sure, and, and you know we've we've done the uh, we've done the river. You know everybody's done the river thing too, where you're you know you're floating stonefly nymphs or, or uh, you know and and hooking the rainbows and hooking the the white fish or or you know whatever kind of fish are around. But nothing beats the you know an indicator getting tugged under isn't the same as watching a, a deer hair fly get uh, swirled. Agreed. So the one thing is, so we're fishing twenty two to twenty six kilometers of water. The hardest part for me is knowing where to pick your spots okay so somebody starts getting into fish do you do you, do you, do you go ashore there <laughs> i really struggle with that because i always feel like i'm bypassing the best water yeah i think something to be said for that but you know again if you're out for the experience then you know do you have to catch every fish that's in the river or do you just catch the fish that you catch and enjoy some scenery and stop for lunch and and if you feel like throwing your legs over the side of your pontoon on a gravel bar and having a little snooze, do that. Uh, I remember one summer where it was so stinking hot that we all uh, stopped in a pool and I think we had a swim for an hour or an hour and a half to try and cool off. And uh, Was that the run where your four-piece became a six-piece? Uh, no, no, that was a different run. Okay. Uh, that that was, a you know, a, an incredibly uh, abrupt 180 degree corner with some white water in it uh, where the where the rod got stuffed into the gravel bar on the side crazy. as i got as i went spinning around down the corner that's a crazy rapid uh, class four <laughs> kind of uh, tuck it under the arm and let's hit this bank hard yeah so on a class one river and all of a sudden there's 50 meters of class four that you have to get through but you know what let's face it if you got 150 fly rods it doesn't really matter <laughs> right yeah, well, you know, that's what happens. I just, you know, well, something like that does happen. I just go down into the vault there and find another fly rod that's tucked into a uh, 
into a rod tube somewhere that's still got the plastic on it because I've forgotten that I bought it two years before. When was the last time you killed a fish? Intentionally? Yes. Probably, probably a year because I think my dad was wanting one brought home or something one day, but for myself, probably 20 years. Yeah, and I was thinking that the other day. John Alexander had a really good quote, and he said it used to be 20, 30 years ago, somebody would say, did you limit out? Now, that's not even a question anymore. Right, right. You know? No, it's true. Things have changed a little bit, and, and, you know, if I enjoyed eating fish more than I do, I probably would take a few more for the table. Um, especially when you're, you know, fishing earlier late season where the water's chilled back off again and, and the fish are, uh, are, uh, their flesh is coming back to, uh, you know, a, an edible, uh, condition. Well, I think that's one thing we always talked about too is, I mean, cooler waters, is there shrimp in there with that keratin and the, in their diet where it's, it's pink. Let's face it, when we're fishing moving water, um, those fish are usually have white flesh. Um, not that I've seen a lot of it, but I mean, we, I mean, it's, it's all about the catch and release. It's all about the barbless fishing. And for me, that's, that's, that's good. So as a guy with, um, you know, more fly rods than I have, let's talk boats because I think you have more boats than I do, which it's not a competition, but I'm, I'm curious, like, I know, obviously you do a lot of still water fishing. What's your go-to setup on a, on a still water uh, for me, it's about portability and uh, ease of use. So, um, you know, a lot of guys will have a, you know, a 10 or 12 foot uh, flat bottom john or, or you know, a V, a V hull um, aluminum boat. Uh, for me, the portability is the factor. And, and if I'm by myself, of course, um, for me, the go-to is, is just a, an eight foot or nine foot pontoon boat. Lots of guys have gone to the frameless uh, that are about that seem to be the most popular ones out there right now. I I still like a metal framed boat, despite the one folding up on me the other day. But that boat was fourteen or fifteen years old, and mm. I think that. Um, How do you feel about folding boats? Well, I'll tell you, I was I once watched I once watched a, a group of guys show up at a lake I was at with my pontoon boat, and they pulled up in a in a Dodge Caravan, and uh, six guys got out, and they had six of the uh, folding boats stowed under the seats of that uh, van, and they uh, they all pulled out, and you know, all of a sudden, within twenty minutes, they were all fishing in a lake. Their top end size potentially is uh, twelve or fourteen pounds, mm-hmm. and uh, they've each got their own boat, so they're not having to worry about two guys trying to stand and cast in, a, in the same boat. Or no, I totally get what you're saying. Anything about like that. <laughs> I mean, um, maybe we should talk about, um, you and I just picked up a couple of new boats uh, fairly recently that are a little smaller and pretty lightweight. Maybe uh, tell the listeners about about those and how you feel about that. Yeah, well, they're, you know, they're a boat made locally here in BC. They're made down in Langley, and uh, they're a seven and a half foot boat, one piece molded plastic, um, 55 pounds, I think they are, Mark, yeah. unloaded. Uh, they're certainly easy enough to fling around, and... Uh, they uh, they fit in the back of a of a pickup. You know, you got an eight foot box. You're closing the tailgate. Uh, you know, with my pickup has a six foot box, so the nose sticks out from underneath the canopy there a little bit. But the nice part is, with both of us having the exact same boat, we can stack them inside the uh, 
truck and you could stack them four deep back there if you wanted to if you had four guys that all had the same boats yeah it's a um, bit of a game changer for me i actually really really enjoy it the only i mean there's no it's like i remember remember my old boss there at the sporting goods store used to say it's like asking for a corvette that's good in the bush <laughs> in, in other words there's not one solution for everything i mean there's a reason you have three or four different boats I like those little boats for, for going out on, obviously they're not a big bot, big water boat at seven and a half feet long. So you go out in a small uh, British Columbia still water. And if you're not the guy who wants to troll a lot, then, because on those little boats, you got to have your hands on the oars all the time or else, you know, is it, is it reasonable to start putting a, you know, electric motor and a battery on the back of a boat that only weighs 55 pounds? Um, you know, the, the motor and the battery probably weigh more than the boat does. Well, that's not what I'm using it for, but I'll tell you, uh, you can really uh, cover a lot of ground with those oars because it is a, a lightweight boat. And, but the, the thing that I would say is you need to be double anchored. Yeah, absolutely. Because, you you know, when you anchor a pontoon boat singly, you have the ability to, to balance where you are in the water with your fins being underneath you. But that boat, of course, because you're just floating on the top and, and seven and a half feet again it's susceptible to the wind. So, you you know, if you double anchor, um, you know, and you want to either strip fish or uh, coronamid fish, you know, or indicator fish, um, those things, boy, I tell you, I, I've, I've, we've had some good outings in those already. Um, takes a little getting used to. The balance point is pretty, uh, pretty small. Um, you know, I'm a bigger guy, and so I haven't been standing up in, uh, in my boat. I've seen you stand up and cast in yours, so I can't speak to... Uh, the balance point to that, but uh, I do know that um, it's not a boat I would be doing any gymnastics in. That's I was for sure. Say, if you work for Circus Soleil, you could probably stand. <laughs> but you know, our, our buddy, our buddy Colin, he's got a he's got a Spratly. I think he's got a. It's not overly long, but those boats are very very stable, very very wide. They've got a wide, they've got a wide beam, and that thing is not falling over yeah well i mean you think about you know the the beauty of a flat bottom boat is the amount of space that you have uh to stand up or move around if you need to and and i think back to roche lake uh when we were up there and you had your 14 foot uh, aluminum up there and you know you had the ability once we were anchored there to you know take your shoes off take your flip-flops off if you want and just be barefoot in the bottom of the boat which you know kind of awesome. feels like a feels like a stripped down kind of a day where you're not having to do too much serious thinking we've done some pretty heavy modifications on that boat though and uh, i just it's 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 flat you've got that flat top on it and you can stand it's like you're sight fishing for bonefish i, I love it well it's certainly that day on roche when we got into a back bay there and and i was able to stand up in the front of the boat on the platform and all of a sudden see you know a lot of fish in a shallow uh, bay full of water that we weren't able to see while we were sitting down in the bottom of the boat and all of a sudden it was clear as a bell where they were i found that think about when you went from a belly boat to a pontoon boat to the back water boat yep just how how things change with that what you can see well even uh as, as with everything changes you know as technology helps us improve and sometimes takes us backwards too i think sometimes sometimes it it comes across the coronamid thing comes across once you've once you've learned how to dial it in sometimes i think it comes across almost as too easy it's almost like fish in a barrel uh compared to what it was 30 years ago and you know 30 years ago you had no idea what was going on under the water you didn't have a fish finder that showed you what depth you were fishing in or what or what depth the fish were hanging at um you know how many guys well they probably still do it but how many guys you know needed to 
put a pair of hemostats clipped to the end of their fly line, sunk to the bottom of the lake to hit the bottom, and then counted back up to see how deep they were. I you know the biggest problem I've always had with that, and we've all done it for years, but when you cast out, so if you're casting 40, 50 feet out, so the hemostats are on the bottom of your boat, you don't know what's going on out there. Right. Right. So you have to make assumptions and you have to do your homework. And, you know, sometimes it takes two or three hours to sometimes it takes all day to dial in a lake. And maybe if you're there multi days, you know, maybe it takes you one whole day to dial things in. And hopefully things don't change overnight so that you can enjoy the fruits of your labor the next day. Of all the guys I fish with, you're probably the one that uh, uses his fish finder probably more than anybody. Uh, you'd probably be lost without that. Uh, you know what, you know, periodically I'll, uh, I'll go without it just so that I don't get so dependent on it that, uh, <laughs> that I can't live without it. But, uh, it certainly does take a lot of the guesswork out of, out of a lot of things. And, you know, I, I just use, uh, uh there again, I'm not a, I'm not an expensive gear kind of guy. So I just use a, you know, a, a fishing buddy, uh, portable fish finder off the side of my pontoon boat. And, and you know what, they're, they're pretty handy running double A batteries. And I seem to, you know, I go through about uh, four sets of batteries over the course of a season, which isn't too terrible considering how much time I have it on. Yeah, you, you've done fairly well with that. That things have been really good. Because I know I upgraded a few years ago and I kind of regretted it, as you know. Um, sometimes more is not more. Yeah, it, everything's as complicated as you make it sometimes too. You know, if you if you really need, like uh, lots of times I'll, I'll, once, certainly once we've, once we've anchored up somewhere, I'll, I just turn my fish finder off. I don't need to, once I'm, once I'm stuck somewhere, I know how deep the water is and, and, you know, I can work the water column off, you know, off the indicator without having to look at the fish finder to find out where they're at. You know, there's no point in, I don't think there's any point in wasting power and energy on looking at a fish finder when you're, or a depth finder when you're, sta- when you're sitting stationary. I'm usually, when we're anchored together, I'm usually pulling my anchor up off the bottom to indicate fish on yours. Well, yeah. Give you some false information. Sure. Well, whatever you need to do to make yourself feel better. A friend of mine and a good fishing buddy, I appreciate you taking the time because I, I know we, we do have a lot of stories to share and a lot of, a lot of things, but honestly, um, I think, I think we've, we've taken up enough time. <laughs> Well, a lot of them probably aren't things that that uh, a lot of people would want to would want to uh, visual visualize. I anyway. can edit this. <laughs> you know what? <laughs> Thanks for being such a good fishing buddy. My, my pleasure, Mark. It's uh, I remember the day that I uh, that I met you. You know, when you were working in the shop and uh, deciding that we needed to go out. Uh, I think it was bass fishing together probably the first few times that we went out because that was my uh that was, that was the flavor of the day. That was the era I was in at the time and uh you had your race car like your like your racing stripes. Oh, like absolutely. Bass, bass yeah. Yeah. Now I only wear guide wear. That's right. You catch more fish <laughs> on the fly though. <laughs> I don't miss those bass. Dude. I love the bass, but I I'm it's all about the trout now, isn't it? Well, the area that we live in it has to be uh you know, it has to be front and center as a trout. Uh, fishery more than uh, more than a bass fishery right now and although you know what what are you doing next weekend well i think we're going in a bass tournament, if, a I bass remember, tournament. if i remember correctly and you know what <laughs> i'm gonna do so, i'm gonna i'm gonna say this on the air now so that i have proof of this yeah you do whatever you want you toss those rubber worms carolina rigs i'm gonna be working the fly and i'm gonna outfish you okay we're gonna we're gonna track this you're calling your shot i just Put my foot in my mouth. Yeah, you're calling your shot. I'm calling it. Yeah, well, I think you throw a uh, you throw a big rabbit hair uh, zonker out there or something. If we happen to be, uh, if we find a find a school of smallmouth, I think we can probably work think them over pretty good. We're going in the bass tournament. Yeah. 
Who's going to be fly fishing? Nobody. We are. No. Nope. Cool. It'll just be us. And okay. and you know what? The thing is, there, there again, it's I've never been in a in a bass tournament type uh, situation, and this tournament is a you know is a longest uh, a longest fish and tournament. And, yep. Yeah. So uh, it'll, it'll be something fun. It'll be something different, and I'm looking forward to it. The weather's supposed to clear up as it comes closer to that time, and right. I think it'll be good. All right. That's my buddy Steve Hogg. Steve, thanks for coming on the program today. Mark Hopley calling his shot in the bass tournament next week. He'll uh, he'll keep you updated and let you know how that went. Thanks so much, folks, for listening to this episode of Fly Fishing Night of Seven. We'll uh, touch base next time with a new episode. Cheers. Thanks for listening to the Fly Fishing 97 podcast. Your feedback matters. Let us know if there's a person or topic you would like to hear on the show. Email us at mark at flyfishing97.com. Until next time, tight lines and we'll see you on the water.